Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to Crate 808 and another edition of our series looking at the best three album runs in hip-hop history. And today is a special one as we dip into the work of one of rap's musical geniuses, a man whose true impact on the culture goes somewhat unheralded in large circles and whose three album run showcases his incredible music evolution and pure perfection of the hip-hop craft. Yes, today we're speaking about West Coast royalty as we dig into the work of DJ Quick and his 1991 debut record Quick as the Name, 1992 superb follow-up Way Too Funky, and then his 1995 classic Safe and Sound. And to speak on this run, we've got a bona fide DJ Quick aficionado in the hot seat, writer and journalist from LA, Max Bell is in the house. But before we kick into gear, let's just remember the level of musical artist we're talking about today. As a kid, the production prodigy that is DJ Quick was having adults come round to his house just to see him scratch records. And he wasn't just mixing two turntables, he was mixing three. But for a real insight into how Quick is seen by his fellow peers, look no further than that other hip-hop great, Questlove. Here's how he broke down Quick's impact on his supreme show. I don't know any producer this consistent with quality. This like, far in their career, like quick, 20 years after I believe that Quick produces and makes records like it's his first album. It is criminally insane to me that his name does not come yes. up. Yeah, and, and his production game, his patches, his chord structures, his production, everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Look, look, I don't know many rappers that have had songs with like entire fucking full string sections. Nobody does that but Quick. I know people that are who are underrated or whatever, or who are underpraised or whatever, get tired of, of answering the question like, how does it feel to be under, you know? But does it frustrate you at all that it- It did. That people don't recognize or that it, when lists are made, like- It did, but now I kicked my care out the window. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't look for that no more. Spot on from Questlove right there. So just to remember when we're talking about these three albums with Max, they are literally the groundwork for what became a stellar career beyond just these three records. As writer Jeff Weiss once put it about Quick, informed by East Coast production, he infused the funk mutations of EPMD with his own West Coast swing. The drums were hard, the horn stabs sharp, the tone loose, raw and playful. Rhythmalism was always present. Indeed. This man forced you to push away all preconceived and reductive notions of what West Coast hip-hop was because his work pushed past the gangster rap image portrayed in mass media cycles. So strap in and let's get into how exactly Max Bell fell for Quick's music in the first place as he kickstarts this convo. How are you doing, my man? I'm doing well, man. I really appreciate you having me. You know what I appreciate? The Troutman Wax poetics behind you. That's what I appreciate. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to be going into that. Let's chop it up about quick. But before we do, Max, I have to ask you why I ask everyone who comes on the pod. What is the least hip hop thing you've done in the last 24 hours? I knew you were going to ask. The least hip hop thing I've done in the last 24 hours. Last night, I put on a, uh, a deep sea clay mud mask. So that way my skin would look somewhat better. Because you don't have any makeup team. We don't have a second unit out there to do makeup. That is the thing. I love that. I don't think anyone's looked after their skin 
before coming on. You're already in the Annals Hall of Fame, man. It's not very hip hop to be into skincare, you know, and I've only gotten into it of late, you know. I'm just glad we can hit up skincare. We're going to talk about hairs generally because Quick's hair is top five hair in hip hop. So we're going to go there, but we've got skin in there as well. Skincare as well. But we're going to go in, man. Like, first of all, I was going to ask you, really, what is it that you think that maybe this has got as a contender for like best run of that decade of the 90s? The most salient thing in regard to that question is the evolution that takes place from album to album to album. So it is not just a three album run wherein he's refining one thing and perfecting it over the course of that. And we're getting a lot of, you know, the same things, but he's evolving as a musician and as a writer um, and as a human over the course of those albums in good ways and bad. There are some interesting things that we'll eventually touch on there. And then it's all the more remarkable because he caps it with what I think would put him above everyone else that you would have, which is a stellar fourth album. So there's that to consider. It's like, okay, yeah, we can compare him to everybody else within a three album run. But once we get down to it, it's like if we were to come into a tie with somebody else that you would put in that three album category, the tie break might be, well, he continued to make great records and they didn't. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's hard enough to manage that three album, right? But there's only a few who've got that fourth. I think Dela might be in there because of the 80s, I suppose you could put that in there. But I was going to say, even Balance and Options, even that, like I've noticed people love that album, man. Is there a context to your experience of Quick, though? Like personally for you, do you know what I mean, why did you fall for him? I was 12 years old. I, you know, I listened to a lot of LA radio, so I'm sure that at that point, I mean, this is 2002, so I'm sure at that point I was cognizant of him on like a subconscious level, you know, having listened to like just whatever was on Power 106, and I knew who Dr. Dre was because The Chronic 2001 was a huge album for me. It was like the first record that I swiped from a friend's older brother, and so then I got this, which I have placed right here. I bought that CD when I was 12 years old. Uh, my neighbor, shout out to Matt Sawaya, uh, was really into rap and was a rapper himself. And he took me to Aaron's Records in Los Angeles, uh, which rest in peace, Aaron's Records was a very foundational, important record store for the Los Angeles beat scene, which some people know as it relates to low-end theory. It was kind of a breeding ground and a meeting ground for a lot of those guys before they had a place to go and, and play. You know, like Kutma was there. A lot of really interesting cats were there. Shout out to Koopma, by the way. So my my friend Matt told me that I should buy this record. And I remember putting it on. And everyone that's probably listening to this knows the first song is Sweet Black Pussy. And you're a 12-year-old. To hear that, you're like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is more than I bargained for. But it's everything that I wanted. Black Pussy. I was talking about it because I love it. Women get going up until soon as they let me rub it. And in a week's span, my homie Freak Man. And so I think it was the raunchiness and the directness that hit me in a way that appeals to a very juvenile sense of humor and a very juvenile just like point of view when you're 12 years old. But once you get past that, I think it stuck with me because he was such an incredible MC. We can talk more about that um, as we get into it. You just gotta love how eye-opening Quick as the Name was for Max, especially with that opening track. Absolute game changer for immature youths. But let's quickly hear from Quick on a subject we need to touch on before we go any further. And that's the fact that his musicality does go somewhat unrecognized in hip hop. Here he is talking on the Bullseye Show. 
I, I think it goes over their heads. Like, cause I come from the school of listening to records like, you know, street songs, Rick James. Mm-hmm. And these records have multiple layers in them. It's not just a two track in stereo. It's like, there's layers of music that you can hear that you don't automatically pick up. So I do that now where I put, you know, you got a bottom beat, you got a bass line, piano, whatever it is. And then on the inside of the track off center, it's like other things happening. Like it's, it's a world of a circular sound as opposed to just straight two speakers. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. And people don't get it. Like they feel it sometimes, you know, something to jump out on the side of the speaker and be like, well, yeah, you know, stuff like that, pan and little stuff. I think that's important. I, I, I think it makes for not so boring records. That right there is an essential part of the enjoyment of DJ Quick's work. Its proficiency is right up there with the goats of the game with a truly everlasting quality. And with the constraints on sampling hitting hip hop hard in the early 90s, Quick's turn to becoming an instrumentalist was vital to his career. And for some insight into the man's view on music, let's just check out how he broke down his mindset when making a beat when speaking with The Fader in 2014. He said, Everything's been done in music. If you're working in 4-4, pretty much everything has been covered. There's no rhythm that's new, but you can make it feel new. So I tried to get the biggest, loudest samples, the funkiest, heaviest drums, the brightest snares or claps, and I tried to blend them together to make a beat that reminds me of my favorite drum beats, like your rhythmic sweet dreams are made of this. I loved that drum pattern. All Kraftwerk's computer games, Trans Europe Express, all those Kraftwerk records, they were fucking out with those drums. I want to do something new, but at the same time, I want it to remind you of Planet Rock. Simply amazing. And again, reminds you that this guy is a very particular kind of genius that works with vibes. When you hear stories about Quick working on Jay-Z's The Black Album and touching every single knob in the studio or getting rid of guys in the crew with bad vibes, you can see how important his craft is to him. And what makes all this even more remarkable is how DJ Quick grew up. Here he is speaking on The People's Party Show with Talib Kweli on that exact subject. My upbringing was, I guess it was normal for the standards of then. I mean, we didn't know we were poor because we was That's cool with what way. we had. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, picnics and barbecues and going to the beach every now and then with the beach being so close. Like, I never took that for granted. Like, mm. the beach is like 20 minutes away. It was paradise until the gang shit started. Mm-hmm. Then it became Beirut. Mm. It became Vietnam. For a kid who wants to be a DJ. DJ means being social, sharing your music with people and being around people and trying to make friends when dudes just want to beat you up because you got on a color. It was oxymoronic. It just didn't make sense to me. And I'm left-handed. I'm creative. So I, you know, was like, how do I navigate this, this gang shit and be who I am? Ultimately, it never worked because the streets just kept continuing to get worse and worse and worse. And I continued to get better and better and better. So I had ended up having to move. And go somewhere where I could blow up and not be a target because you're only going to end up two places in Compton. It's just slim pickings for a young black man there. Went to L.A., met some real cool dudes. L.A. is Hollywood adjacent. I ended mm-hmm. up in Hollywood from there, but I would have never made it from Compton. Amazing insight from Quick right there. So now let's kick it back to Max Bell, who digs into the importance of one of hip-hop's founding forefathers and a significant influence on Quick himself. Yes, we're talking Zap. That classic funk band has its DNA in rap today. And here's how Max fell in love with that group. You know, as my history with Quick goes on, I start to get really into Zap just on their own. Zap becomes one of the 
most important groups in my life. So much so that I have like a giant wheat paste zap poster that is being framed and it's going to take up my entire wall. But you got through zap through quick. Yeah, pretty much. I would say like I knew about Troutman from California Love and then quick comes into the picture and I'm like, this sounds very familiar and it was like heard it through the grapevine on which I think is uh, when you're a G. Just speaking on the talent, what found amazing was that then he was like homeless at 16. Yeah, one of one of 10 children uh, in Compton and his mom worked like several jobs and then she dipped to Louisiana for reasons that I don't know that I've ever found out like what her rationale for leaving was or, or why she was comfortable leaving him in L.A. I think he wanted to stay. You know, he was DJing at the time, so that's where his... That's where he was making his money. You know, he was probably, I, I don't know if he was selling tapes of his mixes just yet. Cause I know that that comes for sure a little bit later with the red tape, but yeah, he was homeless. And then he hooked up with play a ham and uh tweet Cadillac of penthouse players click. And they took him in and he lived with them while he was making the red tape. Yeah. And what I find at such a young age, you can have the talent. And then I think, God, how easy it is to lose that through circumstance. Yet the fact that he didn't, it showed this mental fortitude to quick that I didn't really think about before until I started reading more about his childhood. I just thought it must reflect in his work, in his art, and in his creative like expression. And I was just thinking, it does reflect, actually, in a lot of this stuff that, although it is crude, it can be juvenile, although the lyrics are incredibly badly dated, something like Sweet Black Pussy, when you hear that, the magic trick he pulls with like the sonic bounce of it all and a guitar riff, but I find that really interesting how his mental fortitude is, yeah, I'm going to still have fun, but I'm also going to make this one of the most ridiculously well-produced tracks, which, as you said, he evolves into almost becoming a composer, I suppose, or like an arranger. Yo, 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 just breaking up this episode to tell you all about the Crate 808 Patreon, a place where you can help support the show so we can make you more dope rap chat and to go out there and get some bonus episodes under your belt and also get involved with the live chats with the Crate 808 crew and guests. Go to crate808.com or go to patreon.com slash crate808. Sign up for as little as buying us lunch every month. You can get two bonus episodes, including including hidden gem album reviews from the golden era of the 90s and also you get our series focusing on MF Doom and Jay Dilla and also the Wu-Tang Chronicles. Once a month we drop an album review of every single Wu-Tang member. We're going to go through every solo album and then review it for you guys and right now it's Ghostface. Go in there, get them Ghostface Killer Editions in your catalogue. So get involved, help us grow this show and yes, big yourselves up, enjoy the rest of the episode. Boom! So when you talk about Quick, you immediately draw upon the reserves of a wild musical genre that Zap were the heart of, P-Funk. Here's Quick on People's Party once more, breaking down why this style of music is so elemental to his work. If you listen to P-Funk music, it's serious 
but it's also so insanely playful that it's crazy. Like, these dudes be playing limericks and shit, like, you know, fucking melodies from cartoons and shit. To be able to be that far out there and still to add elements to your music that everybody can relate to, especially young us, it was youthful, but it was also advanced. It's like sampling. They, they were sampling. It's just something about the way they it was it sounded, the EQ of it, and George Clinton being like the orator, like mm-hmm. the he's the there's not a problem that I can't fix because I can right. do it in the mix. He's that guy right. on those records. These albums are like listening to a radio station that you really really like, W E F U N K, We Funk, right. and then his spinoffs were all funky, like Boosie Collins and Brides of Funkenstein and Fred Wesley and the Horny Horns. These are all incredible fucking people. How could you not like that music? And it was timely. We liked our other stuff like Brick, Das, when that come out, you know, them big fat records. But Flashlight mm-hmm. just takes over the damn house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She kills the Aqua Boogie. That's a long one, too. The extended version. Back there, you could party longer. Quick, expertly breaking down the energy of P-Funk right there and touching on its universal appeal, which is why his own music has such a huge following and legacy. But now let's get back to Max as we dig into the first album on this run, his 1991 debut, Quick is the Name. Tell me more about that album for Quick is the Name. You're saying you fell in love with it. What was it about it? Why was it so pioneering to you? Part of it was that it, in many respects, it felt ahead of its time with the musicianship from records of that era. I mean, it comes out almost two years before The Chronic. And I would argue that it that it stacks up against that. It's different, but I would argue that it's equally uh, robust and that there were things that Quick did that Dre could not do in 92. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, just to compare the two styles? Sure. I mean, I believe... Jeff Weiss touched on this a little bit uh, when he was on talking about Sugar Free, which is that Quick always seems more invested in the 80s funk, soul, and R&B, which, you know, part of that time it got classified as like boogie. I think that was the, the overarching term for some of that music. And a lot of those boogie records have somber and sweet R&B bent. And Quick has that. Like tonight... Uh, which, you know, we can talk about at length, the single from Quick Is The Name, Samples Clear. Clear's Tonight, Clear with three E's, uh, which was a band from the 70s that went into the 80s, and when they got into the 80s, they started making the more, you know, synth, R&B-leaning boogie music, and that's what he samples for Tonight. And I think that that carries throughout that record. Whereas Dre is very much more on the Parliament Funkadelic stuff, which is zanier. And he's got the squealing synths and all that stuff. And Quick was capable of that, but I think he went in a different direction. I don't know that Dre was capable of pulling off musical nuance in the way that Quick was. There's so many layers to every production on there. Not that there aren't layers on Dre, but they seem to be far easier to pick apart. Whereas Quick, it's so perfectly melded that it becomes harder and harder to discern where he's pulling from what. 
Great work. And Max alluded to our episode with writer and journalist Jeff Weiss there. Here he is expertly breaking down the difference between Quick and Dr. Dre. There's a split, right, where they, they both are doing like the early kind of funk stuff. Quick is doing more 80s stuff. Dre is kind of doing more 70s funk. Mm. And then Quick kind of like merges it with Middle Eastern music and like his own kind of like, I'm, they're like so fluorescent. He's like, you know, and he's yeah. a master piano player. I mean, I once went to Quick's house. Quick's like, I don't usually show people my chops. And he starts playing the piano and you're like, oh my God, you're like a brilliant pianist. Like, you know, he just had such great chops. Jesus. And you know, he, like the guitarist he had on the record. I mean, Quick is really to me like a, he's like an orchestra conductor. Mm. He became... That was his thing. And Dre obviously kind of did a different thing, but he goes to more like the the minor chord, the stomp, the Scott Storch sound. And Quick gets like lighter, funkier, airier. Mm. Um, and it becomes kind of more in tune with like, you know, the what you think of. I mean, I think, I think of like a Pitch and a Party is like perfect LA noir. Cause it's like, if you listen to Pitch and a Party, it sounds like the greatest like imagination of LA you could possibly have. You know, you see the palm trees, you see the backyard barbecue, you see a, a sparkling blue pool, you know, in your head. And then like, you actually listen to the lyrics and it's like DJ quit complaining the whole time about how ever, like, why did he throw a party? Like everyone is fucking ruining his apartment and they're knocking <laughs> idiot drunk guests are like knocking the fucking chords out to the, the music stops and yeah, like yeah. you know you just used by people and that's just that's just to me that's like so perfectly LA because you're like oh this is paradise and you're like oh it's a hell, hell. <laughs> it's like that's the duality of the city really well and quick is just embodies it Simply brilliant stuff from Jeff there. Big up. It reminds me of Quick being asked by the LA Times about his high musical IQ and him saying that people tell him his records catch up to them six months later. I quote from DJ Quick himself, I can't dumb this shit down. Like, give me a drug to make me stupid. Creativity is what you stay alive for. That's where I'm at. I'm in creativity. I'm not unblemished by what's going on on earth. That is proper shamanic vibes from Quick there. But now let's get back to Max to continue our deep dive into Quick is the Name, an album, as the writer Soren Baker wrote in his book, The History of Gangster Rap, introduced a new sound and style of gangster rap, a largely relaxed and feel-good one in which the protagonist focuses much on women getting intoxicated and having fun as he did on telling the tales about the perils of life growing up in the gang-infested Los Angeles metropolitan area. Superbly put. And the fact that he made Quick as the Name in 17 days on a $30,000 budget in the studio just makes it even more ridiculous. And this is why Kendrick Lamar puts it as one of his favourite albums of all time. So yes, let's get back to Max. I was just thinking about subtlety and I thought like Dre's music didn't have as much subtlety. There was moments of it, but I suppose it's a bit like listening to the layers of the music if you really want to put it that way. And I just think like, God damn, like Quick was just unbelievable with that. Even if he's repeating the same mode, Sweetback Pussy being one and then Loked Out Hood being another, he's still so different in those two tracks. But those two ring the same bells for me, if you know what I mean, in my head. And the other thing I was thinking about, you were saying there about his rapping, which I think gets kind of shitted on I do think that and I also think that it gets better as he goes but I was thinking with this what I actually enjoyed about him is what I loved about Snoop when I grew up which was he immediately stood out amid all this crudeness and juvenile stuff the way he's rapping on Sweet Bat Pussy and then he interrupts it and goes oh I lost myself and then comes back in saying those words with extra emphasism just to really be like a fuck you this is what I'm talking about but the way he's rapping before that it's like a new character he's made up and I just thought for someone like Quick 
his stuff is hardly ever boring. Do you know what I mean? No. And, you know, even though it is juvenile to a degree, like there's nothing wrong with, with sending up black pussy. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Are you going to say that it's bad? Like, so, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that as like a statement. And this was at a time in the nineties when the idea of like the black body being a beautiful thing was like coming into the fore. So that's important in some respects, like as juvenile as it is, like, He's still sending out a positive message about like the beautifulness of black women at a time when like white was the thing, you know. Some great points there from Max. But what does Quick think of how the fans rate his penmanship? Here he is on Power 106. Every bar is important to me. I feel like everybody's hanging on your every word. And if you say something lame, Mm -hmm. you get booed. Like, no, nobody want to get booed. So I think hard for every bar. That's right. And um, I think that qualifies you as a a legendary lyricist. Straight up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get, you know, Kumo D calls me on the phone right now and be like, yo, I want to get in the studio with you. I'm in L.A. That means something. Absolutely. These dudes is my, you know, my forefathers. These is my, my unks. Snoop asked me to write a lyric or two on one of his records. And I'm like. But you're Snoop Dogg. You're Snoop Dogg. How, right? No, nah, why? But they know. <laughs> you don't they need me. That makes me feel honored, man. Like, you know, I'm growing into this legend thing. Big things from DJ Quick there. The respect is real. Now, back to our chat about Quick as the Name and one of the greatest coming of age songs of all time tonight. In Quick's own words, summing up the brilliance of that cut, he said, Somewhere out there, there will always be someone turning 19. So this track will never get played out. Indeed. Here's Max. Tonight, just as a single, is flawless from the production standpoint, and then also from the writing standpoint. I mean, you have a song that details an entire weekend of partying, and it showcases like the realism and the naturalism that runs throughout Quick's catalog, which I think is why people maybe talk shit about him, is that his phrasing is so naturalistic. You feel as though he's talking to you, and there aren't a lot of punchlines. There aren't a lot of involved metaphors. but his choice of verbs, his choice of nouns, they all evoke what is happening. You can see every scene. And in a song like Tonight, he gives you the mundane from soaking in the tub and putting on his cologne and his Givenchy sweatsuit to the highs, you know, smoking, shooting dice. And then it comes the lows. We get the hangover and the hangover recovery and the rally to party once more. And it has an entire narrative arc in a rap single, a radio single. And there's a deep groove also in the middle of that. So he allows for his musicianship to take center stage, which I think is something that he always tries to do on so many records where he's, he's like, I've just rapped and now I'm going to show you everything that was buried by my rapping because it means so much to me. And I put so much into it. All of that is included on a song that was number three on the rap charts. And I think the writing is actually fantastic. If you'd be hard pressed to say, Oh, that was a wasted line. That was a line that didn't show me anything about this narrator or that didn't show me visually what is happening. You can see every scene of that. I mean, it may be mundane to you, but to me, it sounds like a 21 year old who had a great weekend and a little bit of a a hangover. You know? No, I, I love that. And I love how you've put that. And I'm just thinking of things when you're saying that the words he uses. I think, isn't it on Born and Raised in Compton where he says something like Dame Bramage or something? I'm coming like this and I'm coming directly because suckers get damn. 
ain't rhyming Jim, I'm doing damage by the back of block. Rhyming is a battle zone and suckers have no and I was like, what the hell is Dane Bramage? And it probably isn't a mistake, but even if it is, it doesn't matter. That that kind of stuff is what makes the art. And there's moments in this that have all of that. Max Bell is so spot on there about tonight. Love, love, love that breakdown. And here's Quick's own thoughts on the sheer power of that classic West Coast anthem on People's Party. That record made itself. Mm-hmm. I looped the beat and we lived for a weekend while the beat was just on the SP-1200 in the, in the, in the kitchen nook, just mm-hmm. on repeat, banging. We gambling on Friday night. Homies is, you know, we pitching in. Everybody's, you know, bringing liquor and we getting drunk and having fun, eating hot dogs and potato chips and playing, you know, I'll stop the beat to play some other music, like whatever was hot. I'll stop and jam, you know, and then I'd go back to that beat. I woke, you know, I'm writing the song as I'm living it, but that hangover was Fucked oh. up. <laughs> they brought Seagram's gin, and we used to drink gin and juice, or gin and so- super saco. It's like this sports drink that was lemony, like a Gatorade or whatever. And we blend them together, shake them up, put them ice in a cup, and we just sip them all day long. That was the first gin and juice. I was under the impression that, dang, this first drink, I feel great. I feel good. If I drink another, I'm going to feel better. <laughs> <laughs> if I drink three, nigga, I'm going to be happy. I drank four. Oh, no. Now you're dead. <laughs> Damn, the first gin and juice. After some truly horrific experiences on that drink myself, I have nothing but respect for Quick on the drinking tip. But now, we've talked about Quick being an unsung hero of hip-hop, but why? Why is that the case? Here's Max trying to unpack that exact question. I've puzzled over this for years. It really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I often wonder if it is that the shadow that Dr. Drake cast was so large that other people were, for lack of a better word at this moment, overshadowed. And Quick was a contemporary and Dre got a lot of coverage. I mean, if you look at like all the source coverage he got, all the rap pages coverage, he was in Rolling Stone, he was on LA Weekly, MTV, but I don't know that Quick had nearly as much. Like I have some stuff in my archives. I have like a digital archive of of rap journalism over the years and like Quick had a feature, like a very short Q&A for Quick is the Name in the source in 91. I posted it on my Twitter so people can find it if they just like do at VMAXB, two E's and Quick. Um, you should be able to find that entire interview posted in high res because I just wanted people to see how brilliant he was at 21 where he's talking about how much music he's studying, how he reads all the instruction manuals for the equipment study for the equipment that he purchases. His shout out to Jim Morrison because people talk a lot of shit about Jim Morrison and I'm a Doors fan. But I say all that to say like there's a huge gap. There's very little coverage that I could find in Way Too Funky era. And I wonder if that was because Way Too Funky drops and then like at the same time Dre is coming out with the singles for the chronic. And so bam, there you go. Huge shadow. And then we see Quick getting like a full feature in the sword in 95 around Safe and Sound, which, you know, obviously had the MC8 stuff going on at the time. So I think people were a little bit more invested. But I also think that Quick's music is much more personal music than Dr. Dre's music is. Dr. Dre's music is, I'm riding around, I got the strap, weed, women, whatever. And Quick has that stuff. But so much of it is a first person, like very specific to him. If you don't want to know what's going on in Quick's life, then you're going to be sorely disappointed when you turn on his albums because every one of them has songs that are very personal. 
throughout his whole career. I mean, there's songs where he's reflecting on like girls that he dated in high school. That never made in Dre's canon. And I do think that like Dre just has a baseline palatability for people who aren't looking for more personal revelation in their rap music. And I think that that may be ultimately what hampered Quick and maybe the complexity of the musicianship. You know, some people aren't willing to have that much instrumentation going on beneath the vocals, whereas Dre didn't rap as much. There was a lot of space between words. Brilliantly put, Max. Yeah, it's just fascinating to know that's what world he was in. He was a contemporary. Uh, that's why I always respect someone like Cypress Hill and Predator and all this stuff was dropping in the wake or admit it. And I always think it's nice that these albums stood out. Jeez, it really hits home just how brilliant DJ Quick was at such a young age. And yet the lack of coverage is mad to look back at. And on those points on his musicianship, let's hear from Quick on Bullseye talking about how he built his actual sound. It, it kind of happened overnight. I remember jamming out. It, it happened from jam sessions. Like it, it really happened on Safe and Sound. When you listen to songs like Quick Screw Three, like we just threw caution to the wind, and I started miking drums. I mic those drums. Like I engineered that whole record. Bacon played. You know, he played a uh, virtuoso bass, guitar, and my man Chaz came in and played flute. And we just build and build. And then I realized that wow. I'm a musician. I went from being a DJ and a sampler to full-on recording drums the right way. Mike in the snare, two mics, one out of phase on the bottom. Like I was really experimenting and I knew what I wanted. I was driven. I became incensed to get the sound that I wanted and I ended up getting it. Now, now I'm a real musician. I don't have to sample at all if I want to and I can make some of the most incredible records ever. Imagine genius just happening overnight. Wild, wild stuff. And although we don't want to get weighed down in the quicksand of comparisons with Dr. Dre, it's hard to escape that shadow when the two actually worked together throughout the golden era. As the great writer Sean Sitaro once put it, Dr. Dre may have been largely responsible for putting LA rap on the map in the late 80s, but DJ Quick was the man who made it fun. That combined impact would shift the sound of hip-hop forever. Quick's success would spawn many imitators, but no one had his ear for the sound. Even Dr. Dre would end up acknowledging Quick's one-of-a-kind talent by bringing in his Compton neighbour to do extensive work on Tupac's All Eyes On Me. Boom. Perfectly put. And for a little insight into that relationship, here's Quick on Montreality talking about the chaotic period of label fights before joining the Doctor. I kind of lost my, my spirit when I lost my record deal because my record deal was a long-term record deal with Profile Records and Arista. So when I was unceremoniously dropped, with them still owing me like close to a million dollars, now my life has changed and it's almost like it's going back to hustling. I called uh, Dre, Dre never knew my situation. You know, Dre don't judge, man. Dre, Dre let me come to the studio and rock out with him. You know, so I was like, Dre, I want to show you something. I got this new technique I'm doing called interior dynamics where I can take the bass lines and stuff out of these samples and vocals where you can just get the drums. And he was like, you know, Dre, he chills gum real hard. Let me hear. Let me hear something. I put up the drum machine and start playing the breaks. And Dre was like, he jumped up and snatched his head off. Like, how did you do that? How did you? How did you do that? I'm like, I did it. I'm gonna. Sh I'm gonna show you how to do it. So I just went up there and I just started being like the assist leader, like Nate was. And I just started dropping him these crazy, dope drum sounds that I, I wasn't even into doing no DJ Quick records at that point. So I was giving all of my jewels. Like I, like I became a diamond cutter at that point. So I was just giving him my jewels. The claps for in the club. The 
uh, the, the kick and snare for some mixtape stuff he was doing where him and J Jermaine Dupri at that point, they wasn't seeing eye to eye, but Dre was using these big, heavy ass, big, solid drum sounds to like nail everybody to the cross, you know what I mean? And um, the uh, Eminem encore record, like I'm giving him these break beats and he was using them and you know, and it just, that's kind of what it was. It was like, you know, and when I would hear Dre using my sounds and making them sound super big and you know, and selling 10 million records, it was just like, that, that gave me a little victory like in the cut. It was just like, it was my little, wink to myself where you know i knew I, I mattered now if you're blowing dr dre's mind in the studio you're working on another level entirely so let's jump back into our conversation with max to talk about the rise of his star inside and outside the studio what's interesting to me as well is what shoulders he was rubbing at this stage anyway you said there about jim morrison his influences go over i didn't even i was watching a doc and he was talking about meeting um guns and roses i was like what with easy e and i was like damn like for a young person to be with bands who are like number one you know in the billboard yes dj quick and guns and roses what a link up. Here's quick expanding on that story about Easy E on Power 106. So Forum, 1991, just come here with me, like end of 91. My record's out and I'm friends with this guy. He's like, hey, I'm gonna do his voice. Hey man, what you doing tonight? Man, I ain't doing nothing, man. <laughs> hey, come go to the forum with me. I want to introduce you to Guns N' Roses. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> Easy E takes me to a Guns N' Roses concert. <laughs> he's like, man, he's I like, man, it. I told you, man, look, they they cool. Just kick it quick. You good. They just white boys. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. Uh -huh. You know, so I'm up there with Easy E. We watching Guns N' Roses perform and my ears are virgin to that level of sound. Mm -hmm. It's like 75,000 watts. 75,000 watts will shake your body loose. Hey. Oh. Amazing. Just another 90s gem for you there, and even more respect to put on Easy E's name. But now, let's take a quick minute to hear from one of our favorite voices in hip hop podcasting, Nate LeBlanc from Dad Bod Rap Pod. Here he is breaking down the brilliance of this three album run by DJ Quick. DJ Quick is one of those people who it's said that he's underrated so often that it has basically lost all meaning. But in my estimation, DJ Quick is just as an important of a producer and rapper in LA as Dr. Dre is and um, deserves to be mentioned in the same sentence. His early work, like Tonight, is a great representation of that time. Tonight is one of those great party records. It still will play on um, radio and still will resonate over time. But what's really interesting about Quick is he really leveled up in terms of his production and rapping throughout his career. If you look at the Blackout album with Corrupt, he's making these really clean, really musical, kind of digital sounding beats and just continuing to improve his patter on the microphone. So DJ Quick is a super important artist and he's not talked about enough in the upper echelons of producer MCs. But if you um, like I have a bunch of friends who are hip hop writers who cover L.A. and are from L.A. And if you ever say anything remotely disparaging about DJ Quick, uh, you're going to get a lecture. So um, he's respected by the heads, but he perhaps could be respected a little bit more by the general audience. But that's the life of uh, a hip hop star, I guess. Yeah. 
Yes, Nate, love all of that. Now, let's get back with Max and really dig into the other cuts on this first album, be the epic use of brakes and horns on Deep, the timeless emotion of Quick's groove, the pure sonic bounce of that guitar riff on Sweet Black Pussy, or the real old-school throwback of Tear It Off, a song that evokes future work of DJ Format and Fatboy Slim to my ears and could easily be used in early, early Guy Ritchie films. So, let's get into the five mic moments off this album, as well as the most rewindable songs and hidden gems. I was going to move on to Way Too Funky, but before I do, there are some tracks on Quick as the Name that just generally need a shout out. But I was wondering for you if there's any hidden gems or rewindable moments apart from tonight, maybe. Is there anything on the album that you think deserves a shout out before we move on? Sure. And I got I got three, so hopefully I can run through it real quick. Born and Raised in Compton is an obvious one, but I'm shouting it out for a very specific reason. And that is that, you know, we were talking about the writing of DJ Quick and him being kind of undervalued. And there's the part in Born and Raised in Compton where he's talking about his equipment getting jacked. Someone had stole his production equipment, his livelihood. Now Compton is the place where the homeboys chill, you see. But then I found that it wasn't a place for me because way back in the day, somebody must have wanted me to quit because they broke in my house and go stole my shit. They must have thought that I was going to play the punk role just because my equipment got stole. But I ain't going then, as a writer and as a producer at the same time, he goes, so here's some bass in your face, motherfucker, silly, silly sucker. Ass clucker, now you duck it because you can't stop a brother like the quick stuff because I'm true to the game, you lame. He's timing it, all of his words, with the hitting of the bass drum. And then he continues to go on, like, motherfucker, silly sucker, ass clucker, now you're ducking because you can't stop a brother like the quick stuff. And, like, there's a lot of intricate stuff going on there syllabically and it bothers me when people don't acknowledge that he was capable of doing that kind of thing and that kind of leads into my first hidden gem which is deep which features some of quick's fastest most technical and most in the pocket verses yeah now in my lyrics i kick the shit that the critics debate to but i still create the shit that the brothers relate to because it's simple but i'm no simp i'm letting you have it to the temple leaving a star much bigger than a pimple you want the rubber from a gangster boot to your grill I don't really care for Tear It Off. It would probably be the one that I would skip. Although I will say if there's ever a track that might suggest that Quick would have been a great jungle or garage producer, it would be Tear It Off because that shit is super fast. I was going to say the same thing. I heard Tear It Off again and I was like, why does this remind me of Fatboy Slim? Check this out. The Quick is here. Yo, spin, let me stay this. It almost reminds me of like over here, DJ Format made music like that early doors, but also just that house scene, that jungle scene. I was like, yeah, he could have done it. That's an example. And although you might not care for it from UK, it's like, whoa, this kid from the US is tapping into a sound that's huge here. And it's kind of mind boggling, man. It really is. I listened to it the other day. You were absolutely correct. And I like it on a production stand from a production standpoint, purely. I love it. I don't think I can name a quick track where I'm like, that was a bad beat. That just doesn't, it really doesn't exist for me. But it is fascinating that I wonder, and it would be amazing to ask him if he was listening to Jungle, if he was listening to House at the time. Because it's there. I was just lyrically, that one doesn't do as much for me. I think he's going a little bit faster than he's capable of. 
The other hidden gem is uh, the Bomba. I have a soft spot for my heart in that one, even though he's got the fake and Jamaican accent. We have to talk about this. <laughs> hasn't aged very well. It was very much of its time. A lot of 90s yeah. rappers had reggae, you know, doing their he fake kept, and Jamaican He kept doing it, though. He kept doing it. Rhythm and is just, he's like, man, I love you quick, but I don't know. I just can't do fake Pat 12. Yo, my name is DJ Quick. Let me dedicate this song to all the blood smokers and owls. If you like to roll up a big fat hood and smoke it, then let me hear you sing this like me. Check it out. Me smoke it, I've heard many things about Bombard, good and bad. So I'm here for the good. I just think that on a production level, he was also capable of making reggae. Like he was capable of making dub music. I mean, there's echoes of Lee Scratch Perry in that one and Bombard too. That comes on Rhythmalism too. And I just... I think that's what it is for me. It's like, I get that you're kind of like poking fun at the Patois and like, that's not really that cool in hindsight, but I don't know, maybe, maybe quick as Jamaican ancestry. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it is a very fascinating track. People kind of just are so split on it. It's a skip for me, but as a kid, I'd let that play. You know, it's only as it's aged. Like Max said there, Born and Raised in Compton is a standout rap classic. To get some insight on that cut from Quick himself, here he is speaking with People's Party one more time. That's beat mining, going through the records that you get, finding records, because once you run out of things to sample, you got to feed that beast of creativity. And I remember that album, Hot Butter Soul, from my mom growing up. She used to bang that album, right? It's a good one. So we got it again. Long ass songs. Yeah, Yeah. right? Seven minutes a piece. Yeah. Four songs. Right. Dope ass album. Still went platinum. It was something about um, hyperbolic syllabic sesquidaily mystic when it came on. I've never heard somebody actually say the name of that song before. Hyperbolic syllabic sesquidaily mystic. Yeah, it was just the funk of it, that 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 piano, that one bar funk, that one bar. And start over. One bar is that has that much music in it? I'm getting chills thinking about it. So I just put in, a, and anything you put in the SP1200 just sounds grittier, grimier, funkier, bigger, help, like it got nougat on it, just melts. Like, <laughs> I'm not talking about it, it's crazy, dude. <laughs> And I add some drums to it, and it was ready. A hot buttered soul reference from Quick right there. What an album from Isaac Hayes. Okay, now back to Max's hidden gems on the first album with some unexpected UK flavour, it has to be said. But also some major love for a true five mic moment on this album, Quick's Groove. Can I just give a shout out to Quick Groove though? I think the original, man, that for me is probably my favorite track off this album now, only because I play it so much. And as you said earlier, he's ready to say, I've just done my amazing spitting. Now I'm going to give you space and see what I can do with this. And you're just like, wow. And I love where he went with it. As in, he's went really R&B at times. And it really pissed my mates off who were backpackers or, you know, Timberlands. And they were like, what the fuck is this? It's like, no, it's fucking great. This is what art is. It shouldn't be, you know, boom, bat, same drums. It should be this. Yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because I really wanted to talk about it. For me, actually, I think it's where the album should have ended. I think it's a perfect close to a tight, unskippable 10-track album. Like, there's nothing that me personally that I would skip before that. And then everything after, tear it off, I got that feeling, scanless. 
all feel kind of out of place. Not that they're bad records, but they just all feel kind of out of place. Like they couldn't fit in the sequencing anywhere else. So he was like, I'll just throw them here at the end. I got that feeling his age really poorly and is just juvenile and boring. And it doesn't even like cohere with Quick. He's always seemed very sure of himself when it comes to women. And to me, he seems like he's putting on there in a way that doesn't feel genuine or sure. Scandalous is a posse record that's like just testosterone driven nut grabbing and it just isn't that isn't that good and again doesn't feel true to like who quick was i mean he was a very confident man but i don't think he was like a very braggardly man but i would play quick groove on loop for an hour if i could it's brilliant and i know we'll probably talk about him a little more but all of them going forward one two and three on each of these records respectively all pair really well together if you listen to them in sequence they are all within the same vein it's very clear that he knew that if you played them uh, in sequence that they would work perfectly and they're all in that like you said down tempo r&b deep soul vein you're i know you're from the uk but any any la person that's listening would say yeah those records could play on 94.7 the wave which is like our adult LA like contemporary station which plays like your Michael McDonald it plays you know stuff in, in that kind of vein and I guarantee you those could fit right in the mix you could slip one in there and nobody would know the difference I'm so baffled when people don't enjoy the quick screws yeah it is gangster rap but it's not it's weird it shares some characteristics as in the local community and stuff like that but it's really not in what he says so it's just fascinating we're saying this about a 1991 record on the west coast like that it's just amazing Man, what an all-time classic song, and one that has led to a series of quick screws throughout his work. Here's Quick himself on People's Party once more, breaking down that classic joint. Are you ever going to do just a quick groove album? People ask me that all the time. Mm. My mother wanted that before she left this earth. She was like, son, your lyrics is nasty. Just do it. Your music, your music good, though. Just do it. Hey, you said I just tried. Instrumental. Right? Yeah, I try. I try to stop cussing. <laughs> but these niggas is crazy, so. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's in the cards. But I'm just not a guy to just do beat, 10 beats and put it on the album. Like, I need all my favorite musicians to jump in and do their jazz thing like I look at that more as like a Miles Davis undertaking than just a DJ quick thing yeah because I take that shit very seriously God I love how we even get some insight from his mom on his music fantastic now let's get back to our chat with Max who makes some great points on the album cover to quick is the name Before we do go though, quick is the name. I was listening to the remix as well. Obviously, it's great. And there's a few remixes, I think, but the OG on quick is the name. And I just spotted it today where I was like, oh shit, they're fucking bongos. I think he's using bongos on there. I let him know quick is the name. And the dynamism of this fucking instrumentalist is unbelievable. I wanted to touch on your point about it being associated with gangster rap, but not really being gangster rap. And he touches on that in that source interview that I mentioned a little bit earlier in the episode from 91, where he's like, I am not making gangster rap music. But what I wanted to say about that also is that if you look at the cover of the album, it's kind of saying that he isn't. If you look at the black hat, that is a non-gang affiliated hat. Black was a safe color to wear in Los Angeles and there was no logo on it that identified him with a particular gang. And he's also wearing a black t-shirt. So he's wearing neutral colors. He's making sure to note visually, I am not a gang member. 
I don't affiliate with gangs. And therefore, like, this is just a very Los Angeles look that I have. I mean, he's got the jerry curl, which was huge coming out of the 80s. He's got the gold chain. And again, as I said, black was safe, was a safe color to wear in a lot of neighborhoods. Yeah. I'm just looking at it now. I even love the font. It's beautiful. It's a brilliant album cover. I love it. Absolutely. What's so fascinating about it is it's kind of like this sepia-toned record cover that already looks as if it exists in the past. So whoever designed the cover, whoever was involved with that, whether the quick was making those decisions, I don't know offhand, almost knew like this is a moment in Los Angeles culture. He looks exactly as people from this city look in 91. So when anyone looks at this, they will think, oh, that's 91 based on the sepia tone and when the album came out. And there's no chance of you thinking it's a modern record. Like it's almost as if they expected people to come back to it for generations. That's what's kind of brilliant about it. Yeah, absolutely. And the red tape as well had that same thing, didn't it? Yeah. I know we haven't talked about too much about the red tape, but you know, was 87? So yeah, like he's been in it he's been doing it you know before he releases this he was DJing since 81 I believe um, that's crazy What the years he's put in what a brilliant point on the quality of that album cover so now let's check in with New York based writer Pete Tosiello on why he thinks this album run is an all time great hey I'm Pete Tosiello and I'm a music writer from New York as a writer and as a fan, I love DJ Quick's first three albums for their trajectory. Quick as the name finds a teenager in his hometown, and then he starts to explore the world a little bit on his second album, Way Too Funky, and Safe and Sound, the third record, marks a bit of a retreat into the mid-90s gang life. But even more interesting to me is the sound progression on these records, which is largely based on advances in equipment between 1990 and 1995. Quick's debut, Quick as the Name, is based on a lot of compressed samples and keyboard synths, and by Safe and Sound, he was incorporating a lot more live instrumentation and broader interpolations, which he'd continue to do throughout the 1990s. Where he landed in the mid-90s, that balance of this kind of organic funk music with his digitized drum packs has never really been duplicated, in my opinion. Safe and Sound in particular is such a big record. It's also a very angry, unsettling record. It's kind of got this me-against-the-world ambiance without the tragic ending that Tupac met a few years later. And that's why I think it really caps off one of the best three album runs in rap. Absolutely love how Pete breaks down Quick's trajectory on these albums. Big up. So now, let's kick it to 1992 and the second record in this run, Way Too Funky. It was a stellar year for West Coast hip-hop then, with Ice Cube's The Predator, Dr. Dre's Landmark, The Chronic, Spice One's self-titled debut album, Two Shorts, Shorty The Pimp, and MC Ren's Kiss My Black Ass all dropping in those 12 months, and Quick stood out with an album hosting incredibly rewindable cuts like Just Like Compton, an urban tale told with such brilliance is only matched by these sublime prolonged keys and actual Christmas bells. Alongside it you have windpipe magic on the hidden gem that is Quick's Groove 2 for you to rip to for which I still maintain should be played in all self-help retreats around the world. Put those with the reported disc to Tim Dog and MC8 on the song Way Too Funky, the epic guitar solo on When You're a G, which in itself was eye-opening to a younger me, hearing Quick include stuff I'd only hear on Bon Jovi and Queen records, the powerful synth work on No Bullshit, and then veering into Prince territory on End Still Tripping, and you have yourselves yet another quite brilliant album. And let's not forget the return of Sexy Leroy and the Chocolate Loveites on Let Me Rip Tonight, giving the record a lighter air 
compare than what was to come on albums like Safe and Sound. So let's join Max once more and hear his thoughts on Way Too Funky and the massive importance of musician Robert Bacon on Quick's work. But you can hear it, especially when you go to something like Way Too Funky, what, a year and a bit later, a year later, Way Too Funky, 1992. I know Rob Bacon got involved at this point. But where were you? What do you think about his album? How do you think he had evolved? What were the themes that maybe continued and maybe discontinued? I think this is probably the most overlooked record in his catalog, if I had to pick one. There's cause for that, given that a lot of it is kind of a retread of themes that he touched on with Quick Is The Name. But it's a major evolutionary shift in terms of his writing and in terms of his production. And like you uh, alluded to, he starts working with Robert Bacon, who I believe was doing a lot of guitar and bass work on this record. And that pays dividends on a record, especially like, just like Compton, Robert Bacon's all over the guitar on that, quick on the drums. And then there's those amazing Christmas bells that seem to make it into every rap record in the early 90s. But the way he uses them is fascinating. I love how you put, just put them in. Yeah, it's fantastic. He, yeah. They're in, inspired. It doesn't feel cheesy. It works beautifully in the mix. Now, let me tell a little story about the places that I've been to and the shit that I've been through. Like fighting and shootouts and banging and shit. All because a nigga made a hit. Check it. 1991. But like you said, it does kind of come back to a lot of themes that he's touched on before or just a lot of records that a lot of type of records that he's done before like we get another re reggae record with me want to rip your girl which just isn't very good this is the song that i want to dedicate to my true do think it did my homie i will never turn my back on you mommy say lately you got the girls and she make me feel real irie you know everyone rip that if, if DJ Quick made a, a, a Jesse's Girl, shout out to Rick Springfield, it would probably be Me Want to Rip Your Girl. What a marriage. I didn't think about that, but yeah, yeah, fair enough. Jesse's Girl, yeah. I think the one thing that you can give him is his honesty on the on the mic at times. And even it's on um, Only For The Money, where he does say, I'm fucking bored of this dirty talk. And he puts the onus completely on the listener. And he's like, you know, this is what sells. This is what you guys want. So I'm going to make it. Sometimes I just don't even understand why people like this dirty talking shit. You know what I'm saying? But since they do and people buying this shit... I'm gonna kick it like this. You see, a pippin' ass nigga like me is wanted dead or alive because I jacked took a host for the tip. And it's like, oh yeah, he hasn't grown into that, you know, where you get to rhythmalism, where it's like, oh no, it doesn't really matter. What's he say on the cover of rhythmalism? This is 70 minutes of commercial free music or something. He's just like, yeah, you know, this is what I want to do and it's beautiful music. And it's just interesting how he does make that disclaimer in the album. I'm glad you touched on that um, because in re-listening in preparation for today, that was something that I singled out as well. And I think he's still capitulating to the demands of the record industry and of his fan base at that time, fan bases who probably really love Sweet Black Pussy and wanted more of it. And he was probably beyond it, like you said, and like he alludes, like he says on the album, like this is for you guys. But we also have to remember this is 92. He is only like two years removed from living with Playham and Tweed Cadillac. Like 
he was virtually homeless. So he's doing exactly what he needs to do to continue to sell while also telling you, I know what I'm doing and I'm just waiting until I have enough money so I don't have to do this anymore. And then still taking things he has done and almost forcing the listener to listen to a guitar solo in West Coast rap like that when it's like P-Funk. I think it's when you're a G. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. He's just gone into, here's a guitar solo. And I don't remember ever hearing stuff like that when I got to the point where I was like, yeah, like even if he is doing that, you know, this is where he was circumstantially, he still was pushing that boat. Now we can't jump into this album without a deeper look into Rob Bacon's fingerprints all over the record. So let's hear from Quick on Questlove Supreme on how they actually met. And how did you guys first look up? Uh, High C, my boy High C introduced me to him. He was a session player. He played on High C's first record, Scandalous, yeah. I was like, man, who was this dude? Like, this dude hard. Back then, we was looking for the next standard guitar man, Jones. Uh, (laughs) Because he got famous off NWA. Dr. Dre kicked the door in with having real musicians play on your record. It was like, dude, we got to have real musicians. And here's Robert Bacon himself talking on BET's Unsung about how they approached making Way Too Funky as an album. Bacon definitely added that element of songwriting and structure and counterpoint. He took me from being just a beat maker, sampler, drum programmer, to being a songwriter and producer. A lot of cats were replaying live over the samples. We were like, let's go in and create original funky grooves. I told him I wanted to write something pimpish and dark, so he started playing these chords. That's that pimp thing. You know what I'm saying? He can talk to me that way. And I understand it. We speak the same language. Pimpish and dark. Just perfect from DJ Quick there. Now, let's hit up Max once more and dig in to this second album. We talked about Quick's groove at number two on here for you to rip to. Windpipes and DJ Quick, you know, match made in heaven. Let's go. That has the flute, right? Like, yeah. that has the, the, the crazy flute. It again strikes that strange balance between like, it's it's kind of sad. There's like a somberness and a soulfulness to those quick screws where you're just like, I think he's a little sadder than he lets on in his music, you know, in, in his lyrics rather. And there was a lot of tragedy in Quick's life that like we can maybe talk about at some point. Absolutely. I know obviously he lost quite a few people. I do want to talk about Marsberg and people like that later. Obviously, we have to mention the MC8 stuff, the Tim Dog stuff, Penicillin for Wax. And I just thought on Way Too Funky, it was just the makings of like, yeah, a diss track that it's like a foundation to them when he makes like dollars and cents, which I'd said to Jeff when he came on, is probably one of my most perfect tracks, even if it is a diss track. And it comes from that energy of, you know, dissing someone. Jesus Christ, when you think about that track. But we're going to go into Safer Sound a bit. But here in Way Too Funky, it's interesting how he then went from that and built on that and almost included tracks like that a lot. I mean, where did you stand the whole beef thing? I mean, did it engage you enough as a kid? I think I was kind of ignorant of it. Doing my first round of quick listens, Dallas and Sense, it makes it so plain. You know, we can, we'll, we'll talk about the, the the line on that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes it, that line makes it so plain that you can't but help research into it. And I think that was the initial... Like, oh, I need to look into what precipitated this diss. But I wasn't that cognizant of it on Way Too Funky 
And um, I think that's just from my ignorance listening to Quick for the first time and not knowing the history. Because by the time I had gone back to all these records, he was already in balance and options territory by the time I got to Quick. So everything that I was listening to, because I'm 30 years old, so everything I was listening to was a retrospective look on it. But I did my due diligence, so I knew what his contemporaries sounded like and that kind of thing. So, Do you find a lot of more rewindable moments or hidden gems on this one? Is there stuff where you think, actually, that needs a bit more love, like you said with D on the first album? I don't know that Just Like Compton will ever get its proper due. It's brilliant as a tour diary. He's telling you what's happening in every city that he has gone to to tour the previous album. He's illustrating the influence that Los Angeles West Coast rap is having and by proxy, West Coast gang culture is having on all of these hoods throughout the U.S., and I think it's a really salient record because it's also it's on a subtextual level. It's saying the governmental neglect, the societal neglect that bred everything that I knew in Compton is creating the exact same circumstances in other states and other cities. And so that's why I think Just Like Compton is is a brilliant record. There's also, like we said, the instrumentation with Robert Bacon on, on guitar Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because even with the video and everything about that, again, his videos have been amazing. Visually, tonight, it's just a visually stunning video. I love that. But we're talking about visually stunning, man. We've got to talk about the album cover because way too funky, right? I was looking at just looks. As a kid, Safe and Sound was the iconic poster or tea I wanted. But when I now look at Way Too Funky again and again, and I have it here, it's just like probably the best DJ quick look, I feel. I don't know where you come with it, if you're going to power rank his looks, but he's looking fucking cool there. Oh, yeah. I love it. So I don't know where you think aesthetically. He was thinking, though, more about his looks, I feel, at this point, right? I think he was. I mean, again, you know, that first record that's right behind me, quick his name, I think that that was an homage to, like, the neighborhood that he comes from, the gold chain, the black t-shirt, the black hat, like that's, that's such an LA look. You can walk different parts of Los Angeles and still see that exact look today. And, you know, I mean, I'm wearing this, a socks hat, which was a neutral, a neutral hat. I'm, I'm not like a huge socks fan, but it's associated with LA, LA rap forever. And then the cover that she mentioned, way too funky, the black and the blue interplay is brilliant. And I think says a lot for somebody that at the time he was trying to like, I think, break with the ties of his of the gang that was in his neighborhood, which would have been the treetop Pyrus, which is a blood set. And he's got blue on his outfit and he's got blue on his album cover. And like he had to know what that meant in 92. Now let's kick it to hip hop journalist, writer and historian and a regular steady voice on this series, Dart Adams. Let's hear how he sees DJ Quick's album run. DJ Quick's Quick is the Name, Way Too Funky, and Safe and Sound is definitely one of the great three album runs of the 90s. Quick is the Name was the album that established him, and he was able to get above the noise and find an audience, even on the East Coast, as being a Compton MC and producer, which is way harder than it seems to not only make the beats but also do the rhymes and deliver them in a way that blends together seamlessly way too funky and quick is the name of both huge successes kind of surprise profile records and also surprised the the hip-hop listening audience as well due to his how his popularity spread and it follows it up with 1995 safe and sound which is one of the most 
underappreciated rap albums of the mid 90s. And DJ Quick and G1 become one of the most formidable production and engineering tandems probably in rap history that doesn't get the credit that they deserve. So when we talk about great MC producers and you don't mention DJ Quick, you're doing a disservice to the art, the culture, and the history of the music itself. Superb work from Dart once again. Do go peep out that man's work. And now let's get back to Max. You know, you were saying about this is the most overlooked album. There's stuff like on End Still Tripping, where I was like, this sounds like a Prince record. He's almost going into Prince territory. Now. I guess I'm running around on the fucking underground. I'm the Q with the E, and now it's time to get down with the fact that I'm back. Take it fast, fast with the Max and the Jets. Now I can't relax like Flair and this is completely personal experience maybe I've got this completely wrong but I was listening to um, No Bullshit all the way from the hood one chocolate nigga up to no good yo I gotta watch my back cause it's like that too many fools on a mission the first thing that came to my head after re-listening to it was oh yeah I forgot this sounds I don't know if you remember Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles but a track out called Power in the 90s right and it was T-U-R-T-L-E Power I can't remember who the rapper was, but it was massive here. And it sounds like that bloke who made power has just listened to DJ Quick. And I was like, oh my fucking God, his roots are everywhere. Like his tentacles are everywhere. And then I saw the source gave it four mics, which as a kid, Fuck me, four mics, I'm buying that album and I'm probably going to be rinsing that album. And I'd overlook this album, funnily enough. So it is one of them that kind of sits like that in his catalogue, I feel. I think Deep Cover had come out by that time, 187. So I think people were really checking for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And this hits right before The Chronic, I believe. I believe Quick gets two albums in between Dre leaving NWA and making The Chronic. He gets two albums in. And it also, you know, to put it in sociological context for where people's heads might have been at, again, I wasn't there. I was two years old. So this is purely historical perspective is that the Rodney King stuff is happening in 92, kind of around the time that Way Too Funky comes out. Um, You know, Dre allegedly recorded part of the chronic as people were looting around that time. So I do wonder if like just the lens on the West Coast was only focused on what was happening happening on a street level, on a political level, as opposed to what music was coming out of there for that period of time, which would have really obscured Way Too Funky in the public consciousness. And that's why Predator banged at that point as well, because I think that came out in Dyke too. And that had the whole, you know, we're going to tear it, fucking roof rock, tear it up and all that shit. Absolutely, yeah. So I do completely get that he came out in that midst. Now let's move into the third classic album in this magical run, 1995 Safe and Sound. With Suge Knight on as an executive producer, this is an altogether darker record than the previous two. Again, inspired by Zapp's Roger Troutman, this record is filled to the brim with virtuoso melodies, with Quick flexing his musicianship muscles and his incredible work on the talk box. And Troutman's inspiration wasn't just musically, but also on a work ethic tip. When asked about where Quick started when producing a 
song by the LA Times, he replied, where does the Bible begin? I'm not trying to be smart and weird. I start at the beginning. Roger Troutman used to start in the middle or at the end and work his way back. And it was a work of art. It's however you want to do it. If it makes sense to you, see it through. Complete the project. That's what it's all about. There are lots of geniuses out there that don't finish songs. They got songs just waiting in the vault, but finishing takes a lot of commitment. Amazing. And with five mic moments like the perfect West Coast banger that is dollars and cents, a song that proves using a cowbell on a beef track can be amazing, and Quick's Groove 3, a track which Quick himself said is one of the most beautiful pieces he's ever had a part in, safe and sound cemented Quick's legacy of one of the best producer MCs to ever do it. Now, let's hear from Max Bell on where he stands on this album and the dark times this album was born in. From tragic life events in 1995, by being named as a driver of a car that killed a five-year-old boy, to losing people close to him in his support network. When it comes to something like Safe and Sound, then, he's had a lot of time to, you know, hone his craft even more. Shug Knight is exec, producer, mobbed out, cover... Where did you stand on Safe and Sound? Like, what has changed for Quick in all those years? It's so fascinating because I think, like, Suge Knight converted so many people to, like, the dark side, if you will, for, for a brief period of time. I think some stuff had happened to Quick. Um, I think he lost a couple people between 92 and 95. I can't remember during what period in his life that it might've been rhythmalism. I may, I may be getting my history incorrect here during rhythmalism. He lost his nephew and his manager slash friend who he grew up with his nephew in a drug induced rage shot and killed his best friend from childhood. And so his nephew went to prison. So that was rhythmalism, but I brought up rhythmalism, I think, because to talk about safe and sound, I think you have to compare and contrast. You have all of this, more thugged out gang centric quick probably the most of his career on safe and sound and then you compare that to three years later rhythmalism he's a gangsta no i'm not the safe and sound cover is the first cover where he's wearing red which would align him with the bloods i believe because there's press photos from that time that have him wearing a phillies hat i believe the hat on the cover is also a phillies hat which is a favorite hat of the treetop Pyrus. What's interesting about that cover now that we're talking about it in light of him potentially kind of like moving into gang affiliated stuff, you know, Suge was affiliated with the Bloods, the Bounty Hunters specifically, I believe. Quick is blurry on that cover. And I wonder if that like visually signifies him being conflicted about what is going on. The world is blurry. A lot of bad things are happening. This is the East Coast, West Coast beef is happening at this time. I wonder how, if he chose a blurry photograph on purpose. Yeah, because I think it was his security card, Bundy, that passed at this point as he was recording this. And it was like, this pain is definitely there and he's transformed it into rage at times. And there's such virtuosity in this album. I think it's almost like a different person to Way Too Funky when I listen to it now. It's just the evolution is amazing. But one thing I was going to ask you, maybe you can enlighten me a bit more about it because I don't know enough about it. But you said there about him going and making this album. I have heard there are reports that he had an other album he'd made and he just didn't like it and deleted all the masters and destroyed the masters. And then he made Safe and Sound. I believe there's, if you look on the internet, there are some unreleased stuff from that era 
It's called um, the Death Row Sessions EP. If you guys want to find it, listeners, the Death Row Sessions EP has some unreleased quick stuff. There's a track called Bounce, which may exactly be one of the tracks that he might have tried to delete, but somebody got a hold of. And that is fantastic. And I think illustrates my favorite thing about this record, sonically, this record being safe and sound, is that so much of it is his interpretation of the man over my left shoulder here, Roger Troutman. And that's because they met in Vegas in 94 when he was on tour with Robert Bacon. And Troutman like came in, came backstage. And according to Quick, and Bacon. There's a great documentary that people can watch, uh, the Unsung episode of, of the BET Unsung series with, uh, with DJ Quick, um, I would recommend. Or Visualism, which is like his tour diary around the early 2000s. But I think on either one of those, I can't quite recall, he and Robert Bacon both elucidate how in about 20 minutes, Roger Troutman kind of flipped their heads and made them rethink everything they thought about music within just a short period. Like he had Robert Bacon play something on the guitar and then Roger picked up the guitar and completely freaked it and like just blew his mind. And so then maybe it was a result of that, possibly, this is just conjecture, that quick scrapped the album that he and Robert were working on and went back and made sound. Yeah. You know, these legends that we love, they have to have this element of myth about them in the 90s because you watch the Wu-Tang series now on Hulu. And you're like, oh God, yeah, these are all the stories I heard. You could do this with Quick so easily. His life is fascinating. And as Max referenced there, that Troutman meeting was all kinds of mind-blowing and maybe a key reason the Death Row Sessions were scrapped. Just listen to Quick talking on BET's Unsung about that encounter. Roger Troutman came to meet me and my man Robert Bacon when we were on tour in uh, Las Vegas. First thing he did, he sticks a guitar in my face. I played and he was like, okay, okay. And then he took the guitar and commenced to making me forget everything that I thought I knew about guitar in like a matter of 20 seconds. One of those people that change your life with one, one look, one meeting. So we got a little bit more virtuoso with the music and it, it became real serious. Just incredible. And now remember that Quick was in the eye of the storm at Death Row at this time, a cultural hotspot for music generally. Just listen to him on Bullseye explaining how he became a hermit in the studio during that period. There was a lot of work going on. It was busy, but the circles were small. Like you'd be in the studio with Easy e or you'd be in the studio with Ice Cube in the studio next to you, and everybody was just working. It was like this big thing to just be working, you know. And I, I spent most of my time in dark studios and dark rooms with the lights low and candles lit making music. So I didn't see a lot of outside. I got really pale, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I, I was a studio rat. And that's, that's pretty much what I remember, just being in the studio, making sounds, bringing sound to life, you know. 
Just listen to those names. Incredible. Now, let's dig into Safe and Sound as an album, a record that's so good that Tupac's beat for Hearts of Men was a leftover cut. Madness. And with songs like Get At Me becoming an all-time cut to bump in the ride, stacked with stellar guitar riffs and a delicious 2-2 quick vocal stab as the cherry on top, this album stands up. And let's not even kick into that brilliant transition into Digging You Out, or the sublime flute on Something for the Mood, or that infectious, if not criminally too brief, sucker free. But let's see what Max has to say. And the more and more I peeled back on this album, generally, I was like, what is his five mic moments, you know, a moment of near perfection or perfection. And I kept going back to dollars and cents. And then I kept thinking about down, down, down as well. And I was like, there's stuff on that album that might be perfect. And I don't want to be hyperbolic, but dollars and cents is probably, I know in Spotify is his number one and it's probably his most renowned track. I heard about it through that on the Murder Was The Case soundtrack. That's the first time I'd even heard or clocked quick. I don't know what for you, where you thought Quick's five mic moment, does it come on this record for you? I would say of all the Quick records, I'm not going to rank them here. They're like children for me. Oh, I would yeah, never. No, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I, I rub the head or I, I favor, I favor these uh, Safe and Sound and Rhythmalism. Those, those twin records for me are probably his greatest record. Uh, Quick is the name being my first love because it was my introduction. So I'm, I'm, you know, I have that. But as far as, five mic moments go maybe one of the harshest couplets of all time on dollars and cents e-i-h-t now should i continue yeah you left out the g because the g ain't in you that i don't know that there's a more vicious line in all of west coast rap disses you could point to no vaseline where ice cube kind of lets her rip but like this is so subtle and you stripped him of the value of his chosen artistic name. Like he can't escape that. Any of the other disses that we would talk about on No Vaseline or on The Chronic where they're really going in on Eazy-E, he destroyed him in name. And name is so important in rap music. I was just going to say, MC8, you ain't great. Something simple, right? So I wrote his name down. I'm just looking at his name and I was like, oh, I got him right here because he didn't even spell this right. This nigga left out the G. E-I-H-T. <laughs> Should I continue? He left out the G because the G ain't in you. And I slid the pencil across the bottom of it and I got up and walked away from the table. I knew that was it. Tell me why you act so scary. Giving your set a bad name with your misspelled name. E-I-H-T. Now should I continue? Yeah, you left out the G because the G ain't in you. And then it makes everything else sound more emphatic. Just like disc records, if you start that fire, like hit him up, he started that fire, that resulted in life and death shit. It shouldn't be easily talked about. This could have quite easily done the same. They're gang culture, gang affiliated people. This could quite easily have ended in MCA and DJ Quick losing their lives. But if you look at it from a musical standpoint, when he's saying stuff like, now I'm going to boot your motherfucking ass to the moon, as a kid, I was like, like that's such a child, not childish, but such a basic thing to say. But you've so emphatically said it in the mix with what you've just said. Yeah, he he absolutely kills that. Thank God Jeff Weiss was on here to talk about Sugar Free Street Gospel because I can see why moments on there could be five mic moments because DJ Quick is so different, like just experimental. I don't know the word for it, but you know, like just wilding out. But it's interesting that you isolate that boot your ass to the moon line because that's preceded by him saying, 
I'm down with Bloods and I'm down with Death Row. So he's able to get off an otherwise like kind of laughable line because he's proceeded with like, yeah, if I really do this, it's, it could result in some serious shit. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes music just comes down to a wondrous moment like that where everything just clicks. Now, let's get back to Max and wrap up this incredible album and that use of a cowbell I mentioned on Dollars and Cents. Peak usage of a cowbell in a hip-hop diss record that's classic West Coast banger. It's like, wow, there's so many moments where he's like, that shouldn't work, but it fucking works. I was reading how upset, maybe he wasn't this upset, but in text, they looked quite upset. Uh, that uh, uh, He was talking about um, the drum break on Dollars and Cents. I don't know if you know about that. You probably do know about this. But he used that same one for Tony, Tony, Tony. And, you know, let's get down. And But I was thinking that drum break, oh, I didn't know he used the same drum break. And I continued to read the interview, right? Eddie is fucking fuming. He's like, everyone's nicked that drum break everyone and he's like even home alone with r kelly has that drum break i ain't seen it everyone's just capitalizing on my sound and just leave my name off the credits that quick interview i'm talking about here it is on bullseye that same drum sequence was used in r kelly's uh, home alone it was used in shackles on my feet for mary mary it was used in dollars and cents my, you know my record it was used as a breakbeat for a uh, simon harris compilation one of those breakbeat compilations and it ended up on uh endo smoke by warren g and mr Grimm. it ended up on black superman by 187 code 187 above the law and uh second and nuns be true to yourself it was like that drum break with the extra drums that i added it's an automatic it tells your feet what to do immediately Immediately, as soon as you hear it, I've never seen people not react to that song. That, that song is going to be a hit. That song's going to outlive us all. Let's Get Down is my favorite song of all time. I don't know that there's a more perfect merger of R&B and hip hop. It is endlessly replayable. It interpolates Nirvana and it works. The video is phenomenal and was shot in the Bradbury building in downtown Los Angeles, which is where they shot Blade Runner um, or parts of Blade Runner. So there's just like a lot of L.A. stuff there for me. In terms of giving away incredible music, this is an opportunity to talk very briefly about Straight Playing by Shaquille O'Neal, which is one of my favorite DJ Quick songs that plays on the radio on K-Day out here all the time. That is a phenomenal record that was made, I think that was 97, so that comes in just before, in this period, that Tony, 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 between Safe and Sound and Rhythmalism, in between there, he's making a friggin' hit record for Shaquille O'Neal, and it's phenomenal. I love it, every second of it. Shaq is some of his best rapping. He was coached by DJ Quick at some point. I don't think there's anybody that comes on a Quick record that isn't rapping as well as they possibly could have. Absolutely. And that is another aspect of him. Like on this, he's going into, as we said, Quick Screw again, that number three on this. I know we've talked about them all, but I do remember him saying, that's the most beautiful shit I ever made. 
it's like, wow, he is getting to that point now where he's making things seem so easy because there's so much of it. I think this album is more consistent, I would say, because I can't even think of many skips on this album for me. You're in a world, you're being treated like you're in that world and it's fun and there's beef and there's dissing. And I don't know if there's as much dark stuff on here, but like there's a lot more freestyle stuff like Sucker Free. That one should be a longer track. But the fact that he is just so casually talking to that guy, spit that shit you spit on the phone the other day. Drop it right here. Remember that shit you was busting for me over the phone, that sucker free shit? Yeah, I remember that shit. Well, won't you put that shit right about here? As a kid, that world building and that, it felt like doggy style. It felt like, you know, that kind of really well produced top to end and thinking about how this is sequenced. And then it leads into rhythmalism, as you said, to contrast it. Yeah. But in terms of like darkness, there is that, right? Like obviously on Dollars and Cents, like even though it's a fun sounding record, it has potentially life-threatening consequences. Safe and Sound, the title track, is actually a very sad record. You know, he's talking about his biography about lack of money leading to him selling drugs. The hook there is actually quite sad. It might not sound that way, like he doesn't deliver it that way. He delivers it with confidence, but he's talking about not believing in God, not having any friends, and not having any lovers, only money. This could be a way for me to flip that little funky $20 that I earned. Right then is when I learned that. Some believe in Jesus, some believe in Allah, but they just like me. Believe in making dollars, cause even when your niggas wanna be untrue. You know the money's still good to you. Yes, yes. Some believe in love and some believe in friends, but they just like me. Believe in making ends, cause even when your bitch wants to trick the rap. You know the money's what you say, it's out. Hey, I get to dub on the press of 15 for a fact. So instead of spinning it up, I get my money. It's interesting because I think he contrasts it later when he gets to rhythmalism, but that's where he was at in his life. And I think it speaks to like just coming up where he came from, where money meant everything because there was so little of it. And also because there was so little of it, then people can do really duplicitous and terrible things in order to take stuff from you like he had his equipment jacked. But it's interesting because in his life later on, Quick actually becomes quite benevolent, benevolent to the point of like, maybe you should stop giving people so much money because you're not going to have any left. In much the same way that like, I think Roger was, you know, Roger Troutman was kind of undone by finances. The circumstances surrounding his, his death, um, his brother shooting him were all about him kind of having run the family money into the ground and quick eventually gets there. Fascinating points from Max there on Quick's aim to actually last in the music business. But as we've spoken on in this run and danced around his tenure at Death Row, it's only right we hear from the man himself on his relationship with the supernova of rap energy that was Tupac Shakur. Here's Quick talking to Big Boy TV and Bullseye about what Pac meant to him. Super cool friend. Energe more energy than I ever seen. And I'm a hyper dude, but Tupac was up on the, I, I stole his live performance when I used to see him jumping on speakers and rocking it seriously. I, I copied that from him. I never seen nobody rock like that. A martyr. I hate even get a chance to have kids, you know, and leave, leave us somebody that could follow in his footsteps like Easy did. But he's forever alive because of that music. We did our thing in the studio with yeah. that All Eyes On Me. I jumped in and went hard. What I, was that like working with Pac? 
it went by too fast, number one. That was the fastest two days I ever remember being in. It was like a roller coaster. I heard he worked in the studio he worked. He would come in, sit down, listen to the beat, stand up, get a pen, light a blunt, write the lyrics to the song right there on the spot, go in there, check me out quick, test two, one, two, two, push record, and he's doing the whole song. Like, Jeez. this is insanity. I can't believe I'm watching this, but hey, get another beat. Let's do I it again. That. Let's yeah. go again. Come on. If you on, like, he was like Daryl Strawberry. Like, you just throwing the ball, and he just hit it off the park. He was just knocking him out the park. Then Damn. he'd go in the studio with Dre, do the same thing. Then he'd go in the studio with Johnny J, do the same thing. Then he'd come back to me. Man, that does sound insane. And an all too brief relationship between two geniuses in the recording studio. But now, back to Max and more insight into the delights of Safe and Sound. Also on Safe and Sound, there's just a brilliant use of TalkBox. I'm a sucker for TalkBox. Every time it comes up, I need it. And Quick always uses it tastefully and very well. And and I've had the opportunity to see him in concert three times for sure, maybe four. But he did a series at the Key Club, which is no longer exists in Los Angeles on Sunset. I believe now it's One Oak. But the Key Club was like an all-ages spot. So I was able to get in at 18 and 19 And he was doing a a series of concerts where they were just kind of jam sessions. And he would bring in anybody who was available. Like, uh, I forget which famous female rapper showed up one night, but it was either Lil' Kim or or Foxy Brown. I honestly can't remember because it's so long ago. But he would play the talk box. I went to two different nights of Quick's Groove at the Key Club. And he would play the talk box for extended periods, just jamming out. And so he really knew how to use that instrument. It was not studio effects. He valued it. And it's, it's so evident. And I have the opportunity to write about what uh, is called mo- modern funk, which uh, would be, you know, starting with Dame Funk out here in Pasadena, who kind of goes on. And there's, there's some obvious Roger Troutman ties in, in Dame Funk's music. And I've been able to talk to um, probably one of the best keyboardists and, and um, talk box users out here in the West Coast, which would be XL Middleton. And we have both commented on just how brilliantly Quick is able to implement that into his music. Man, that live show sounds insane and exactly what Quick is about. Listen to him talking to Nardwar here about how instrumental the talk box was in his music and this album run. Well, to me, the importance is because Roger taught me how to use it, I got to keep it going only because a lot of people didn't really understand it. A lot of people try to mimic it, but they don't do it right. You have to use passion when you do it and you have to really do it right. My friend was wondering, what synthesizer setting do you use? He's dying to know their DJ quick. You use a sawtooth wave, triangle, triangle wave, sawtooth, get a lot of sawtooth going and not a lot of low end because it's a it's a voice thing. So if you use a lot of bass, you'll probably fl- fry the driver in the component itself. So don't use a lot of bass, but sawtoothy triangle, triangle wave. Superb stuff there from Quick on Nardwar. So let's jump back into our chat with Max and the power of Quick's musicianship on this last album in this run. And you know what? I am probably wrong, because there is a lot of nihilism in this whole thing when I can't remember the exact lyric but it's like I don't give a sh- all I give a shit about is music and sex <laughs> guess who motherfuckers I don't give a fuck my attitude is got it yeah and I'm hard to love cause I don't love nobody hell no all I give a fuck about is music and sex a fifth for Remy Martin and some big fat yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's street level entrance and that is the very first thing he says on this album 
That's it, yeah. And it's like a fifth of Remy and some fat-ass checks. That's all he wants. And yeah, absolutely. And But to go with that, it's his production level, just wide-ranging production level. It's gone so far. Well, if you look at Get Out Me, that's another one where I was like, that will forever bump in a ride. But it's the way it almost transitions into digging you out. It's just fucking incredible how that transitions into that. And then I was like, something for the mood with that flute. And it's, you're in summer, even if you're in winter when you hear that. But it's when you hear stuff that I didn't really enjoy as much as a kid. But when I hear, can I eat it now? I don't want to eat it. <laughs> I'll beat him up, beat him up, beat him up. No, baby, I ain't with it. I, I can't do nothing for you on that tip, girl. So you can keep that salmon sandwich to yourself. Despite the lyrics, despite all that stuff, although, you know, he's practicing safe sex and all that in some of his, in a lot of his raps, I would say in that, just looking at it musically, that is such a strange track musically for me, but it works. It's like, why does that work? But again, it's very hard to articulate, but if you go back and listen to these albums, you'll see what I mean. But any tracks on here that deserve a bit more shine? Before I get into that, since Can I Eat It was just brought up, that's age the worst because he's, you know, saying that don't go down on women, which is like, we've finally progressed as a as a society and, and as a culture with rap. Um, I say we, I'm, I'm a guest in this house, but I'd like to think that I'm a part of it to a degree. And uh, rappers today are more advocating for oral sex. Like YG, one of his first songs was I'm a Pussy Eater. Like that was one of his earliest songs. So we've come a long way in that respect. And Quick is kind of reneging on what he said on um, Me Wanna Rip Your Girl from Way Too Funky, where he says he wants to taste it. So, you know, something happened to Quick. I don't know if Quick got burnt or, or what, what happened to Quick. But he becomes very proactive about safe sex between 92 and 95. Yeah, something yeah, happened yeah, like, yeah. or someone in quick circle, something happened. But Can I Eat It is, you were saying about what works about it musically. And I think it may be his most faithful interpretation of Zap. I don't know if there's another record on there instrumentally that slaps as hard and has the snare that, that hits that hard. And then the talk box at the end, the kind of like, there's an entire minute at the end of that track. I will listen to all of the unpleasant kind of regressive stuff before it, just for that last minute, which is basically the closest he's ever come to, in my opinion, embodying the spirit of Roger Troutman while also making it his own. There you go. You've nailed it. I was wondering what it was. And it's it's the Troutman, man. It's Zap. Again, you have the disses, let you have it. You know, even though it is a diss, there's so much funk in that that just separated itself from the rest of my listening, despite it still being another diss record. And I used to love diss records as a kid, but it's just one of them things that lyrically doesn't enrich me as much nowadays. But I find Quick is a different beast. It's not about that all the time. And just like, I think it's um, The Ho In You, which is another one where I was like, Look how he's arranged that track. And it's on a rap record like this, where you're like, damn, it's just weird. It's like full of gangsterisms. And yet you've got this where he's live, well, feels like live composing, you know, these instruments. And yeah, I just find, you know, we can't ever 
sleep on the fact that he's a musical genius. I think that's the way to put it. Backed up by the fantabulous chocolate love lights. Give it up for the chocolate love lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know some of you hoes are wondering where we're going after the show. <laughs> you know what a limo is, baby. And I think that that disjunction that you outlined or that, that dissonance where it's like, there's all this gangster stuff with like this very sweet, soft R&B stuff is kind of inherent in growing up on the West Coast where you see lowriders going around and you see like kind of the most thugged out people driving those lowriders sometimes. And they're playing oldies. You know, they're playing stuff that's talking about love that's talking about pain there's a sadness there but then they're also like the hardest looking people on earth with like face tattoos and teardrops and you know black and gray tats up and down their arms you know and that kind of dissonance i think is even if this isn't exactly that like he's not creating an oldie track you just absorb that growing up in los angeles And whilst it's all well and good to talk about this intellectual, artistic flair in Quick's work on these three albums, I have to ask, what drives it all? Here's Quick on Bullseye once more, breaking down the why behind his music. You really aren't aren't afraid to make pretty music. Yeah, no, I've music. been I've been uh, I've been heckled <laughs> a lot about it. People have uh, I felt it. Like, why do you make beautiful music? I don't know. I think that's what the world of music is missing. You know, there are people that are trying to do it now and they're just making cute music and cute is fleeting. I think that beautiful music lives forever. Damn, quick lamenting the state of modern music, but he could have a point though. So now let's jump in with another set of dope rap voices and their thoughts on DJ Quick's album run. Here is the crew from Weird Rap. These first two DJ Quick albums were huge for me. You know, I heard Born and Raised in Compton on the radio and I was immediately sold. I loved his voice and that beat. And just at the time, I think I'm in eighth grade or seventh grade and he had all the right elements for me. That whole first album I thought was amazing. By the time the second one came around, I played that one over and over. I just have all these memories of being on like family trips with that playing in my Walkman on my headphones. And by the time Safe and Sound came out and post that, when he started really like producing for more other people, he got like a lot more respect in the ma mainstream, I guess, and got more acclaim as a producer. But for me, it was all about the first two albums. He kind of lost my interest by the time Safe and Sound came out. I don't know if I just matured as a listener between then and the second album where I started to care more about lyrics. I also felt like the production was a little bit more smooth and to me watered down. Yes, too smooth and pretty, but I just was a big fan of their whole crew of AMG, yeah. Second to None, and High C. I loved the first albums of all those three. AMG especially had some very weird rap songs on that first yeah. album. It was just such like immature, like potty mouth like sex rap i could understand everything that they were talking about like nothing went over my head as an eighth and ninth grader you know i like felt like i fully got it i outgrew it to some degree but i still will fondly go back to those albums every once in a while yeah i mean i i can just pretty much echo everything you said it brings up a lot of good memories uh 
in Michigan. It wasn't, I don't think, as popular. But a friend of mine moved from Ferndale, closer to Detroit, to my small town and imported the DJ Quick for some reason. He was a huge fan, and I don't know if it was more popping there or not, but he turned my whole group of friends onto it, and we all played it a ton. And it was like at every party, just like it was the soundtrack for like many years, those three albums. And I think, yeah, like you said, like it was like the, the recipe was like these really like funky banging beats, hard, simple lyrics, but then these like incongruous moments of like, you know, funny disses or like sexy Leroy or like the, the weird reggae one. And then like the mellow instrumental, like the quicks groove, the things that don't quite make sense. So like that, that kind of weirdness paired with the, the hard stuff was like just a really entertaining recipe. So yeah, a huge DJ Quick fan. When Way Too Funky came out, of course, I heard Just Like Compton. Yeah. I was like, I've heard this guy before, but this, this, is, this is a motherfucking hit right here. You know, that's a hit. And, you know, of course, they mentioned San Antonio, which is right down the road. You don't really hear many non-Texas rappers talking about Texas at that point. So, yeah. even if it's kind of a backhanded compliment he's giving San Antonio, you know, he's still like, hey, I even got to wear the bulletproof vest while I'm out here, you know. So, it's a, it's a little bit of clout for the Texas heads, you know. That was a super smart business move, I think. Like, probably based on having his first single be all about his city. And he's like, uh, yeah. you know what I could do? <laughs> Name a whole bunch of other cities in my next big single. <laughs> you know what it reminds me? This was like my first trip to the record store after I had won this long argument with my dad that got me his permission to buy explicit lyrics tapes. Prior to that, like the new Run DMC album had come out and it had explicit lyric sticker. They were my favorite group at the time. <laughs> and I like actually like cried during like my my like, you know, argument for why he should let me get explicit lyrics tapes and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I won the right and I got the that Run DMC album, but then like my next trip to the record store, I was like, all right, I can get whatever I want, explicit lyric stuff. So I got this album, the new EPMD album at the time, and then uh, my friend was with me. He was like, yo, you gotta get this Kid Rock tape. So <laughs> I had never even heard of it, but I saw the, the cover of it, Grit Sandwiches for Breakfast, and I was like, all right, looks good. <laughs> so, so we got it, and then we're in the truck with my dad, and he's like, all right, let's hear this. Let's hear this oh, dirty man. rap music you got. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, let's play the Kid Rock, I guess. And, and my friend's like, no, you can't. You, you can't play that one. Trust me. <laughs> EPMD was a CD, so we couldn't play that one. And then... Which that probably would have been the one to go with out of the three. But all I knew about DJ Quick was the first song on the album was called Sweet Black Sweet Pussy. Black Pussy. <laughs> oh, yeah. We gotta play the Kid Rock, I guess. Damn, I love that from the squad. Big, big up weird rap. Great work on arguing with your dad to buy rap albums. I felt that. I did feel that. But now, let's jump back with Max on his thoughts on Quick's legacy and a figure that orbited around him at this time, and one that deserves a mention in this episode, Marsberg. 
So safe and sound, as we've said, you know, incredible. There were a few characters in this mix that I know we've talked about Sugar Free on the pod before, but I was wondering for your thoughts on Marsberg. Unfortunately, Shot's death affected Quick hugely. For someone like that who was on these albums with Quick, what was it about him for you? Like, how talented was he? He's one that like kind of like the rest of a lot of the people that like Quick brings in. Like when he brings him them in, they kind of blend into what he's doing. Rarely for me, and I don't mean this to diss High C, to diss Second to None, or Play a Ham, or any of those guys, because I, I can recite their verses. They just don't stand out in a way that like Quick's writing does on the records. And I think it's because he knows the music intimately, and they're coming to the music. So when it comes to the end of this, his legacy... Unless you have anything else you want to say about Rhythmalism, I know we've said a little bit of that fourth album. Is there anything else you want to say on Rhythmalism before we move on? Just that it's criminal that there have been like no retrospectives or documentaries or anything of that kind surrounding the making of that album. Talking to Al DeBarge and all the people that you could talk to around the making of that record. And Safe and Sound while we're on it. I pitched a, a, a retro 25th anniversary because that would have been last year. would have been the 25th anniversary of Safe and Sound. And I had pitched that to a place with Fork in the name. They review records. I don't know who they are. <laughs> um, and they, uh, they they never responded, which is odd. because and they, and they still haven't reviewed it. So That is mad, isn't it? It's mad. That, like, they, there are all these retrospectives, 25s, and Quick is left out again and again. This year being the 30th anniversary of Quick is the name. And I don't know that we're going to see any of it. Well, I'm glad we can talk about it now, man. Because when you listen to Rhythmalism, the intro alone should wake you up and think, this is not the same as everyone else. This is very different to everyone else. Medley for a V, another one of those. Obviously, you you talked about you're a gangster, all that. Down, down, down. One of me, five mic moment for me. Like All this stuff that he does and then goes on to do with Truth Hurts and stuff like that. He has this legacy. Um, I think I did read actually something about he said that Rhythmalism might be his favourite album he's done because... It was something like, even though it's all over the place, it still constituted one sound. And I was like, that's a really good way to put it, because that album is so wide ranging. And yeah, yet it still is very much on the album. It's uh, cut from the same cloth as everything else. Really hard to balance that, I imagine, as an artist. After this three album run, after Rhythmalism, what changed for Quick? How did he change in your rotation, your love for him? Like, what changed for him generally in his, uh, in his life? Well, right, like Rhythmalism, like I was saying, you know, that's the record where he kind of like, he lost people as he was finishing it. And I think he goes into some darker places when he gets into like balance and options. And then, you know, under the influence, he's like kind of like the cover is like him looking like a junkie. Some of the records get a a little bit stranger and less cohesive as he goes along. But I think that's because he's pushing himself musically. I wonder if it was just because he had condense so much learning into the period between 91 and 98 when Rhythmalism comes out that he was at the peak of his powers, so to speak. And then everything after that was him kind of trying to find new ways to do what he'd already done. But there are some fascinating post-Rhythmalism records. I mean, there's stuff on Blackout that just the beats alone are wild. Blackout being, for anyone listening, his, his album with Corrupt. Or even his reprise of Tonight in 2017 on his record with Problem, which was called Rosecran, is great. And it's a reprise of a record that we've known for decades. He still has it. The problem with talking about his legacy is that 
I don't know that he's interested in preserving it. And I say that because he doesn't grant interviews. I know his publicist. I've hounded his publicist every year. I will say if this is the year that he wants to talk, I'm here to talk to him. And Quick does not want to do interviews. I've been asking him to do interviews since 2016. So here we are five years later. I still don't have a DJ Quick interview. DJ Quick, if you're listening, I hope you liked what I had to say and you're ready to sit down. And I tweeted this, so this is not you know something I don't stand behind. As you said earlier, he is the prince of rap music, like somebody who's constantly pushing themselves, somebody who's going in wild directions that may not always work out, but that are always interesting. Rarely is he retreading the same sonic ground. I think I either read something or watched something or he was just like, I don't repeat drum patterns. And that's the only time maybe that that Tony Tony Tone record. But uh, other than that, I'd be hard pressed to say like, oh, all these DJ Quick records have similar drum breaks or what have you. That's because he's programming. But the gaps between albums get longer and you have to wonder if it's because he's creatively stifled or if he's reached the end of his line. I think it's fair. You know, I think the, the assumption that people should create art forever or until they, you know, until they die is, is, is a wrong one. Sometimes people only have a finite amount of creative abilities within them. And we're lucky that Quick's finite set of talent was far from finite. It was quite vast. But I think he may, you know, the last record was 2017. And I don't know if we'll ever get another DJ Quick record. And I'm, I'm fine if we don't. Um, there's just so much to appreciate, even on the Book of David from like 2011, I believe. As you said, he's had tragedy. Well, even he has gone out there and said, but he can't be unaware of, you know, him not getting the plaudits he deserves. He's even said it. I remember when he was like, King Hunter, hot in here. You know, there was he was saying there was all these tracks, even I think in the club as well. Like he was like, I've done work on these. I should be credited for these. How much of that are you going to take as an artist until you get to a place where maybe it's not as fulfilling? Um, this is again, very much a hypothesis. It's not like, you know, what I've, what I just something that you have to take into mind. You know, there has to be something for an artist after a while. I'm just glad that you can still hear it though. Like no one molded merengue in this stuff. And now you hear, you know, and sitars or what sounds like sitars and stuff like that. And I think, he has this imprint, which is um, just so huge that you may miss it, but until you start looking at it, you realize, fuck me, it's vast. Everything he did. Max, I appreciate you bringing these albums on, man, because I've been looking forward to doing this. And uh, the second one of these three album runs, just brilliant to go with quick because uh, it's just been one I've been chomping at the bit with. So I appreciate you, man. And I appreciate all those points that were banging. Absolutely smashed it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time here. And, um, one final note on Quick's legacy as it relates to this three album run. You don't hear really Dr. Dre using the talk box until 96. Safe and Sound comes out in 95. Very much Roger Troutman-like. And then Dre recruits Roger Troutman for California Love. And so I think people will often say like, oh, Dre brought Roger Troutman into West Coast rap in a literal sense, but uh, Quick brought him in a spiritual sense and in an influential sense. If I could get our roided out headphone magnate, Dr. Dre, on the phone, I'd be like, so yeah, you listened to Safe and Sound quite a bit before you went in the studio with Pac, right? And interesting side note, Quick appears in the video for the other version of California Love. Yeah. Well, you hear a lot about All Eyes on Me would not be All Eyes on Me without DJ Quick. It's the engineering alone Remember, this is a musical genius, man. He can play them instruments, you know, and this is the thing. We all talk about Eric Sermon and put Eric Sermon on these mountaintops and rightly so, RZA, 
Dre premiere, but Quick is absolutely deserving of being at the top with them. And um, I'm glad that we got to do this. So, man, thank you so much. Where can we find your work, man? And is there anything you'd like to plug? I'm at VMaxB, T-H-E-E, MaxB, on Twitter and on Instagram. Those are public profiles. You can you can find them. It has links to my website on there, which has some of my collected work. Um, I would really encourage a lot of people listening to go read my most recent piece for The Land magazine, uh, which is run by Jeff Weiss. And that is on Jay Swift, the producer from The Far Side, who I believe doesn't get enough credit for his work on that record. And also that piece is about his struggles over the last six years with getting back into the U.S. He was deported in 2015 as a result of um, some drug charges that erased his status as a uh, green card holder in the U.S. So that piece is really about the horrors of our immigration system and how they've affected somebody who could have had a very incredible resurgence in the United States if he'd been able to stay after he'd gotten sober because he had a long bout with um, drug addiction. Um, Apart from that, um, I write a spin column every month, kind of spotlighting new and upcoming rappers that I take great pride in making sure that every that I stand behind everyone that I'm writing about and that it's not because I have a column, but because I want to write about them. There's some great people that I've covered there, like Young Morpheus. I implore everyone to check out Young Morpheus. Reaper Mook from Long Beach was a recent one. I also have a piece coming out since we're on the West Coast rap tip on Inhale uh, that will be in the next issue, the physical print issue of the land. And Inhale, for anyone who doesn't know, is Nate Dogg's biological son. And uh, he lives in Long Beach and he's a really talented and makes music in the vein of his father, but also does some really interesting things that his father never did. Not no disrespect to Nate Dog, because I we could talk about him all day. Big up on that because far side, everything about that. And I appreciate you actually out there doing this work. So big yourself up, man. And you talk about Nate Dog, and I was like, I think um what was that track now? God, it's on rhythmalism, and I think it might be the pussy melody medley. It is. The Nate Dog hook that needs tons more love. Unreal. And again, the production of Quick is absolutely unreal on there as well. Nate Dog, tell him how she looks. Girl, you look fine, so fine. I wonder if you'd like to take the time to cry. If so, why don't you leave with me today? Let's play. This game I called it Touch a Secret Place. Let's play. Yeah, man, I appreciate all the work you're putting in and I appreciate your love and just passion for this, man. Doors are always open, Max. Man, hopefully we catch you soon. And yeah, thank you again just for your time and passion, my man. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. Wicked. Thank you, bro. Peace. Peace. This was a Crate 808 production co-produced by Intricate Management. All music supplied by Grindhouse Music. <laughs>